Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. Great to be back. Nice to see you. And Haley Kanoff. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. So guys, what's going on this week? I wanted to do a little bit of cleaning up from last week's show. A very kind listener reached out to me and said that they really enjoyed the show last week, but noticed a small misstep on my part when I was talking about the Tesla case where they were found liable for a car crash. I apparently at one point combined the words negligent and liable and said that the company was negligible. Oh, well. Okay. Which is a word. It is. But not a word that is germane at all to uh, liability for an accident, which I thought was. (laughs) Weirdly, I think it almost works because the the meaning of that case was that the amount that they were liable was so small, it is in fact negligible. That's true. And when I listened back, I was like, maybe I can get around that. But I did like literally call them negligible. Yeah. Uh, which is not right. correct. <laughs> and the only the reason I wanted to bring that up now is because I will be discussing corporate liability for an incident on this week's show as well. So thank you to that person. I'll be on my P's and Q's because part of my job is to say things out loud in a clear <laughs> manner. So I do try and keep that, take that. We time. all try our best. Yeah. So we do have a lot to go over in today's show. A little bit later on, I have a really interesting talk. You guys know I can never resist a juicy IP case. Yes. So I talk with Ryan Davis and Danny Cass, who are two patent pros here at Law360, all about a judge in Texas who had amassed quite the patent docket and some rule changes have taken that away from him. So pretty interesting story of sort of the rise and fall of this patent king. Yeah, Ryan and Danny are all over that story, and I know that's of tremendous interest to uh, the patent bar and people who are just sort of general court watchers. It has like an interesting kind of when judges have their little fiefdoms and definitely uh, chipping away at that. Um, but uh, I did want to mention one more thing before we get yes. to the, sort of our main news stories. I want to give a big shout out to our data team. Um, Because a lot of firms, you know, you hear a lot of talk about how law firms are really focusing on diversity, equity, inclusion, and and what they can do about that. And so every year we put together something called the Diversity Snapshot. It's a big survey where we get responses from firms about how they are faring in terms of hiring diverse attorneys. We've done this for many years. And this year we found that the firms have actually made some incremental progress toward diversifying their attorney ranks. Attorneys of color represent about 19.6% of firm headcounts in 2021. That is up 1.5 percentage points. I know that doesn't sound like much, guys, but that's actually the biggest jump we've seen since we've been tracking this data. So incremental is the right word, and it's not what I think people that are pushing for more diversity would want to see here. But it is at least, you know, a little bit positive that it's a, a bigger jump than usual. And they have a whole slate of stories on our website that break it all down, that data point and many others that they found around this issue. So I would really just encourage people to head over to our website to check it out. I will echo those sentiments. That's always a very interesting package of stories to read and check out. Let's start with the news, though. And I just kind of want to put out a disclaimer of sorts, I suppose. Both the news stories that we're going to talk about this week are pretty heavy. They both involve murder cases, which is not something we talk about a lot on the show. I think regular listeners know we focus more on corporate litigation, civil litigation, things like that. And I want to start with what is basically a 
a truly staggering case in Texas, which is technically a, a civil case involving a corporation. But a Texas jury on Tuesday ordered cable and telecom company Spectrum to pay more than $7 billion in damages after finding the company grossly negligent in the stabbing death of an 83-year-old woman in Texas who was killed by one of the company's field technicians in 2019. So that is a pretty heavy set of facts to throw yeah. at you guys between it's a heinous and like nightmarish crime and on top of that there's this huge judicial reward that was given to the victim's family again 7 billion dollars which is going to be appealed the company has said that but I think it's best to kind of just get into it here because there are a number of uh, very eye-opening things. Yeah, run us down the facts here, Alex. Um, the headline alone was just mind-boggling. Yes. It, I mean, it's a stabbing case. I thought it might be a typo, staffing something, um, but it was not. This arises out of uh, the murder of a woman named Betty Thomas in Texas in December 2019. The perpetrator was Spectrum Field Tech Roy Holden, who had been to Thomas's house on a call the day prior, but returned the following day. He was off duty, but he went there in a company van when he learned she was still having service issues. He murdered her with a company-issued utility knife and stole her credit cards and went on this huge spending spree. Holden was eventually arrested. He confessed to the crime pled guilty, and was sentenced to life in prison in 2021. So that sort of handles the criminal element uh, of this case here. But Thomas's family then turned its sights on Spectrum itself, and they filed a suit basically trying to hold the company responsible for their family member's death. They basically alleged that the company committed a slew of safety failures, didn't properly vet this employee, and also allegedly used forged documents to try and keep the case out of court. So it was a clear shift in strategy from holding to account the person who actually committed it to the sort of corporate responsibility that underlies the issue here. Typically, you know, unfortunately, these, these things do sometimes happen where a worker commits a crime, but it usually doesn't result in such a huge amount of liability to the company itself. So Alex, can you tell us more about the forgery and the use of company property and how that kind of played in here? Yeah. So right up top, Spectrum has always maintained that it performed a criminal background check on Holden before they hired him. And that came up empty. But there was testimony that came out at trial here that said that the company did not look into his employment history, which would have uncovered firings for forgery falsifying documents, and harassment of his fellow employees. There were also witnesses who testified to the fact that Holden allegedly was suffering some severe distress, personal distress in the weeks leading up to this incident, reached out to his Spectrum superiors on multiple occasions regarding personal financial issues. He had was going through a divorce that left him with very little money and no real place to stay all of which were effectively ignored by the company. The trial also surfaced new evidence that as his financial situation began to deteriorate, Holden started to basically scam elderly female 
customers of the company by stealing their credit cards and checks and other things, which is exactly what occurred when he murdered Betty Thomas. The Thomas family's legal team also kind of broadened this out beyond this specific incident. They surfaced some data that said like there had been like 2,500 reported thefts by Spectrum employees against customers over the past several years, and that the company basically shrugged this off and didn't do much to look into it or anything like that. So, I mean, it was a, there were many prongs to what, uh, to what they were arguing. A lot more than just a few failures in relation to this one specific incident, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. But so you mentioned that, you know, he, the, the employee may have had uh, a past of forgery, but also Spectrum may have been doing some forging of its own. Yeah, so this is where it gets really unsavory. I mean, most of the case is built upon Spectrum's failure to identify this employee as someone who was dangerous, right? I mean, that's that's where most of it lies. But trial testimony revealed that the company initially ignored requests by police and prosecutors to preserve evidence in the case. And one Spectrum executive testified that the company was, quote, not necessarily, end quote, obligated to tell the truth or cooperate with the police. And then the real kind of headline item here was that attorneys for the Thomas family said and, and, and showed evidence at trial that after the family filed suit, the company basically forged out of whole cloth an arbitration agreement and served it to the lawyers, basically saying, you're covered by this arbitration agreement We have to talk about this in private, closed-door arbitration, not in open court. And basically, the implication, the allegation is they did this to avoid extremely nasty publicity, which is what we're talking about here. And that was, again, entirely a fabrication. There was no such arbitration agreement. The lawyers knew that. And then that, that itself became part of the dispute here when they went to trial. We talk so much about arbitration agreements that actually exist um, right. and and how those do many opponents of arbitration agreements say that they do insulate companies too much from bad actions. So this is a twist even on that. that you they know, do have to exist in order to do, do that. To. That's, That's a, a key issue. <laughs> Yes. Well, we we also, uh, I mean, the the thing that really caught my eye, not knowing sort of all of these unsavory details here, is just the dollar amount of the jury award. I mean, seven billion with a B is huge. So, kind of break that down for us. Yeah, it's an enormous dollar figure, and you know, you almost don't even want to get into the very unsavory business of like trying to put a value on someone who was murdered and all of that. We're not going to do that today. I bring that up only to state that there are a number of post-trial motions that could knock it down significantly. We see that across litigation in a number of other contexts. Um, The first bit of business that has to to go down here is Spectrum's own appeal of the case, which it says will be filed in the coming days. It may even already have been as we're discussing this here. But the point is they will be fighting this. Just to kind of walk through how we got there, though, to that number, there was an earlier stage of the trial that wrapped up in June that was just compensatory damages. And the jury there found that the company was grossly negligent and 90% responsible for the incident. And all told, that put Spectrum on the hook for about $337 million in compensatory damages. 
So the $7 billion figure we saw this week was entirely punitive damages. We're just talking about to punish Spectrum for its role. They've already been found grossly negligent. Here, the jury found that these various mistakes that the company made were found to be the proximate cause of Thomas's death. And I also wanted to note that the jury found that Spectrum intentionally committed forgery with the intent to defraud or harm the plaintiffs. That's in regard to this bogus arbitration agreement. The family's legal team was quick to point out in in media uh, reports after that that forgery finding means that the punitive damages won't be capped under Texas law. So that's definitely something to watch as the case moves through appeal and post-trial motions. There are many things yet to come, as I've already said, but it's really a pretty remarkable example of when a horrific thing happens with company property and by an employee and how aggressively you can look to hold the company responsible for the horrific actions of one of its employees. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. Thank you, Alex. So next up, we have another uh, rather morbid story here. And, you know, again, we did not intend for this to be a uh, such a murder-heavy episode, but both of these cases were just really, really fascinating for different reasons. So so this one is, um, it happened down in Georgia where a former Fisher Phillips attorney is facing the possibility of a new murder trial stemming from the death of his wife in 2016. Now, this attorney, Claude Lee Tex McIver III, was convicted of murder after shooting his wife in the back while sitting behind her in their car which was being driven by a friend. The Georgia Supreme Court recently overturned that conviction, which brings us to the state's request for a new trial. Okay, I will. I don't think I've ever said this on Pro Se before, but like many women of my age range, I listen to some true crime podcasts. And this sounds like fodder for that. I mean, he was in the car behind his wife and shot her in the car. I mean, that's I'm already fascinated. So break down that incident and how this all played out. It's certainly a uh, an unusual one. So the incident happened while the couple was driving through Atlanta with McIver's wife's best friend at the wheel. McIver has maintained that the whole thing was an accident. He says he was holding a gun in his lap while they drove through a quote-unquote bad area, fell asleep, and then accidentally fired the gun into his wife's back. Uh, McIver also supposedly had a sleep-related disorder that could produce involuntary movements. But prosecutors say the trigger pull required quite a good amount of pressure, and he also may have had a motive. They, According to them, McIver was preparing to retire from Fisher Phillips, and he wanted to gain control of his wife's finances. Diane McIver, his wife, was a real estate executive with no children, and the couple kept their business interests and income separate, according to the case. So after a seven-week trial, jurors ultimately sided with the state. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in 2018. It probably goes without saying that he was an accomplished attorney himself. He continued to litigate it. We just got done talking about how there's incentive to appeal uh, things like this. I'm sure he did. 
And we're talking about how a conviction, got, this conviction got thrown out now. What were the circumstances that led to that? Yeah. So this one centers on jury instructions. The Georgia Supreme Court says that the jury should have been instructed about a lesser charge of involuntary manslaughter. And that sort of jury instruction is warranted when there's conflicting evidence about whether the fatal act was unlawful or simply rose to the level of criminal negligence, according to the Supreme Court. So on top of that, also we should note, the court said some of the evidence at trial lacked relevance or its value was substantially outweighed by the threat of unfair prejudice. Some of that evidence included details about Diane's will um, and the hospital she was taken to after being shot. So ultimately, the court said, gotta throw out the conviction. Okay, so the court threw it out, but now the state wants a do-over. Um, what are they arguing to try to get that? It does. The state wants it fast also. So the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, which was writing on behalf of the state, filed a motion to specially set a new trial within 180 days. The state noted that the Supreme Court also acknowledged that the evidence against MacGyver was sufficient for a rational jury to concede he was guilty of the crimes. Um, and that means the state is authorized to retry MacGyver, according to them. Interestingly, the state also said the jury already had the option of either acquitting MacGyver or finding him guilty of unintentional criminal act. But, you know, the jury did not. Uh, they convicted him of committing intentional criminal acts, according to the state. It also reiterated some of its case against MacGyver. They said, uh, prosecutors said that his behavior before and after the shooting was, quote, unusual. After the shooting, he immediately began trying to convince his wife's friend to lie about what happened, the state says. He also provided numerous conflicting and false statements about the incident. So, you know, I I hate how often we have to end these with, we'll wait and see, but <laughs> well, I really you know, will be waiting and seeing on this for one. For this one, Haley, if there's any other true crime buffs out there, Law360 will be covering, you know, everything to come if this does indeed go to trial again. So they can go, head on over to our website, read more about it. I think it's definitely an interesting one. Absolutely. District Court Judge Alan Albright has spent the last few years encouraging patent owners to file suit in Waco, Texas, turning his court into a patent litigation hotspot. But one judge having that much power over IP cases brought scrutiny from U.S. Senators, the Judicial Conference of the United States, and even Chief Justice John Roberts. And this week, Albright's patent reign came to an abrupt end after a new policy was announced to randomly assign patent cases filed in Waco to one of 12 judges in the Western District of Texas. Here to discuss the rise and fall of Albright's patent court are not one but two Law 360 patent pros, our own reporters Ryan Davis and Danny Cass. Welcome back to the show, guys. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I, we needed the whole crew here today um, to talk about one of my favorite subjects, who is the king of the manor when it comes to IP. But I do want to set the stage for people that 
maybe aren't following the IP world as much. Um, why is it so important to figure out where venue is for these kinds of cases? So uh, a lot of patent cases are against big companies with deep pockets. Uh, and that means that the, uh, the individual judge's policies and procedures can have a big impact on how uh, cases proceed. Uh, for instance, uh, a lot of the, the plaintiffs that are suing these companies want uh, trials to be scheduled quickly because that puts pressure on the defendants to settle. And uh, at the same time, they want judges who are familiar with the, the nuances and technicalities of, of patent law uh, and are willing to engage with them and therefore less likely to do things that um, judges that don't care so much about patent cases might do, like stay a case while the patent office uh, reviews the patent or grant early motions to invalidate a patent or something like that. And the judges in Texas, particularly uh, Judge Albright, have checked a lot of those boxes. It also has to do with the jury pool. I think uh, plaintiffs are looking for uh, juries that might be a little more skeptical of these big company, tech companies and willing to rule against them, while the tech companies want to be somewhere the more of a friendly venue, uh, likely somewhere in, in Silicon Valley uh, and not in, in Waco, Texas. So that's, uh, that's kind of why venue is, is really a big deal when just about any patent case. Yeah, that helps set us up here because I know when people hear that our big topic today is venue, they're like, okay, I'm turning off this episode of Pro Se. But it actually is really fascinating because we're talking like name brand companies you know fighting over millions and sometimes even billions of dollars. So where they end up and if that impacts the case can be really, really fascinating. But let's get into Albright and how he became a household name for those of us that, that read and write about patent law. Danny, can you give us a little? you know, background on, on how he um, became so important? Sure. So Judge Albright was appointed by President Trump in 2018. Uh, so he's only been on the bench for a couple of years now. Before that, he was a uh, patent litigator. He worked at Bracewell. And so as soon as he got on the bench, he made extremely clear that he really wants to do patent cases. He would make a lot of public statements, whether it be in interviews or at conferences, being like, bring your patent cases to me. I know what I'm doing. I can do them well, and I want to have them. And a lot of judges don't like having patent cases because they are very technical. So within two years of Judge Albright joining the bench, it was calculated that he had between 20 and 25% of the of the country's patent litigation. And that's a huge number, right, Danny? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Waco previously, you know, they had a dribble of cases at best. It was really not much to speak of. Yeah, so Waco really went from almost no patent cases to being the center of patent litigation in the country. And this is all even before he had ever conducted his first trial, because his first trial wouldn't be until October 2020. Yeah, so he basically was building up this docket by saying, like, come to me, I would love to have your cases. And it really worked. I mean, he's one judge out of, I don't know, guys, how many district court judges are there around the nation? Um, Hundreds. Uh, 650, six, 700, somewhere in that ballpark, right? It's something like that, yeah. The patent owners really liked filing with him because, like Ryan said, he wanted to get to trial really quickly. He didn't want cases to drag on. And it was unsure how it was actually going to look once he got to trial. So even though he joined the bench in 2018 and people were really looking forward to um, going to trial with Judge Albright, it was what he talked about the most. There was no actual trial until October 2020. 
And the first trial he conducted ended with the defense winning. And the second trial ended with the jury um, issuing a $2 billion verdict against Intel. And there's only been about two $2 billion patent verdicts ever. So this was a really big deal because suddenly it was confirmed that there's a chance to get really big money if you're in his court. Um, and so patent cases continued filing there. It got to the point where um, he was given permission to hire a second magistrate judge just to help him with patent work. He also, I believe, has more law clerks than most judges do to help out with his docket. Yeah, so he's really creating a world here where he is king in the mountain for patent litigation, and he's building the judicial infrastructure in his court to handle all of that. Absolutely. And another big thing is that as part of getting to trial quickly, um, he wouldn't pause the cases for um, proceedings at the patent office. So there's another way you can challenge the validity of a patent that uh, takes place within the patent office. And that procedure takes about a year and a half. And so a lot of judges will stay the case, allow the patent office to figure out whether this patent should be invalidated and then continue the case. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. We're just going to move forward. And if the patent office wants to work alongside me, that's fine. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Let's dig in a little bit more to that, because critics did start emerging about a lot of things with Albright, but one of them was his stance on on those stays. So what was sort of the criticism there? Why why did this become so important? Yeah, so the, the defendants really did not like this. They want to have the opportunity to, to challenge patents at the, the patent office, which has a, a track record of often invalidating patents that, they, that come before them. Uh, and uh, so his refusal to, to grant these stays was exacerbated by a policy that the patent office adopted where they said, if the trial might be over before our decision, before our statutorily mandated one year that we have to, to rule on this patent, if the, the district court is finishes first, uh, we might not bother to institute a review of this patent at all. So that makes it feel like a race, right, Ryan? I mean, yeah. it feels like then it's <clears> like this gamesmanship of like, who can do it first? Right. And Judge Albright said on many occasions that I think I can do it faster than the PTAP. So, uh, so that was one of the, the many issues that, that cropped up uh, with his patent docket. A lot of the, the big tech companies have tried to lobby the patent office and filing lawsuits and lobbying Congress to, to try to, to get the patent office to change this rule and has been modified to some extent. Um, but it is still in place. Their argument is that basically if we're sued in front of Judge Albright, he schedules cases so fast, we're, we're never going to be able to, to challenge patents at the, at the patent office. So what about cases that got filed before Albright and one of the parties said, no, this is not proper venue. I should be elsewhere. Was, was right. he willing to transfer things? I think there was also some real commotion over that as well. Right. Uh, yeah. So that happened in many cases. Uh, the defendant will, would be arguing uh, this case has no connection to, to Waco, Texas. I'm a big tech company. I'm based in San Jose, California. Um, the case should be there. And for the first few years he was on the bench, Judge Albright denied every one of those motions and came up with some rationale why Waco is the proper uh, venue for these cases. And that started to change when the, the Federal Circuit Appeals Court issued many, many rulings uh, ordering him to transfer cases and calling his reasoning flawed and saying it was flouting precedent. 
And uh, so that started to change. It started to grant a few more motions to transfer, but it's still a contentious issue. But this just goes to show you some of the controversies that, that cropped up with one judge having these policies and having so many patent cases. So I know there were a lot of other critics as well. Um, can we talk a little bit more about them? Uh, I mentioned some of them up top. What kind of complaints did they have about the way the system was working here? Absolutely. So the big thing about filing patent cases in Waco is that it wasn't like you had a 50-50% chance of getting Judge Albright. It was that if you filed a case in Waco, you had Judge Albright. And so there became some concerns about whether this constituted a judge shopping because you were guaranteed that if I file in this court, I know who is going to handle our case. It's not yeah. going to be random, which is which is what it normally is in other courts. And so that really came to a head at the end of 2021. We had uh, Senators Tom Tillis and Patrick Leahy, who are really involved in patent law. They wrote to the Chief Justice and said, hey, can you look into how this is allowed to happen? What in our legal system allows that a single judge can oversee an entire division so all cases are automatically assigned to them? And Judge Albright was not named in that letter, but he was he was everywhere in it, even if it wasn't his specific yeah. name. It was clearly about him. Yeah. And that makes sense, right? Because if, you know, if one judge is going around making speeches everywhere and giving interviews saying like, file your patent cases with me, and then the system is designed in a way that if you do file there, you know that's the judge you're getting. That is, you know, that's unusual. So it would certainly be something that the judicial system would want to look into. So they basically just complained about this becoming a fiefdom, right? Pretty much. So in December, the federal court system decided that there was seemingly merit in the senator's complaint and that they wanted to do a study to figure out whether there was actually issues with the way the system works, where people can pick their own judges, and if that ends up impacting cases. And it became such a a significant concern that when the chief justice was doing his year-end report, he named patent law and patent venue as one of his top three issues. And patent law has never gotten more than just like a brief mention in his year-end report before. So it really stood out to the highest judge in the land that what he was doing was questionable. As much as the three of us would love patent law to be this important all the time, (laughs) it is really weird to have seen it sort of rise to that level of national prominence. Very surprising. We've painted a portrait here where this judge sort of intentionally tried to gather up a bunch of patent cases. That worked. Um, But then there was a lot of different complaints about various aspects of what he was doing in the courtroom and his own policies and also this broader question of should one judge be able to be in this position to sort of get one kind of case and have people forum shop in that way. So that kind of leads us into this week. Um, We got big news that there's a change in the rules about who's going to get cases filed in Waco. Let's explain all of that. What's what's the big rule change here? Yeah, it was huge news, and it dropped very surprisingly on Monday. So the chief judge of the Western District of Texas, Orlando Garcia, announced that when a patent case is filed in Waco, from now on, it will be randomly assigned to one of 12 judges within the Western District of Texas. So it includes Judge Albright, but it's also another 11 judges who are based in Austin or um, El Paso, San Antonio, a couple other places. And so now if you file a patent case in Waco, 
you have a very small chance of getting Judge Albright as your judge. That's a big change for us here in the way this works and does sort of align it more with what you expect when you file in a court that you could get a random assignment of your judge. Um, This doesn't do anything immediately, right, in terms of Albright's big slate of current cases. His docket stays the same, correct? Yeah, it's only going forward. It doesn't take his previous cases away from him or anything like that. I want to talk about kind of what this means now. Is this the end of Albright? I mean, is his are his big aspirations to continue this giant patent docket over? What do we expect moving forward? Well, people were, I talked to you this week, were saying in the short term, uh, it's unlikely anyone's going to file in Waco just because it's completely uncertain now. You have a one in 12 chance of getting the judge who you presumably really want. And the rest of them are uh, have very limited track record on patent cases. You don't know what, how they might rule. And it's just yeah. not really worth it. Going forward, um, people were speculating what might happen in the, the Western District if some of the other judges were to adopt some of the policies that, that Judge Albright had in place that could uh, make it more appealing um, to file there. And right, because really, a bunch of them, could a bunch of them just say, just like Albright did, say like, we're still going to be really fast in the Western District of Texas. We're going to not transfer things if we, unless we absolutely have to, and we're going to fast track all the cases. Right. Um, they could do that. Uh, as you say, they're all sort of unknown qualities. Right. We don't really know what they, what they might do with them. So people are starting to think about where the cases might go Otherwise, I mean, one place that people won't talk about is the Eastern District of Texas, which um, until recently got a lot of patent cases until some uh, venue rule changes made it a little harder to file there. Yeah, Ryan, that one is the one that I used to be very familiar with because that was Rodney Gilstrap is the famous jurist there. And I know we've talked about him a lot, um, including on Pro Se, about how I used to refer to him as the patent litigation king before Albright came along and tried to snatch his crown. That's right. Yeah. So companies might might look to the Eastern District. It's still hard to to file, harder to file there under these new rules. Right. Um, so that might be challenging. I mean, the other places that just get a lot of patent cases anyway um, might get more. Uh, Delaware gets a lot because all most companies are incorporated in Delaware. You can sure. sue sue anybody there. California gets a fair amount because. The defend, a lot of the defendants are based there. The plaintiffs don't usually want to file in the, the defendant's home court. So, um, And then the other possibility is that some other court somewhere that no one's even thought about before might uh, step up to the plate and uh, make, try to make themselves appealing um, for patent litigants, uh, kind of in the way that Waco was not really on anyone's radar four years ago. Um, we might see see a new court come into play. But in the short term, the patent litigation map is going to look completely different going forward than it did last week as a result of this order. It's fascinating to me to think that some judge out there might be like thinking to themselves, how do I get the patent things to come to me? (laughs) I am in Wisconsin, but let's make it a hot spot. (laughs) Like it's it's just a really fascinating issue that there is, in fact, so much appetite in, in certain jurisdictions to try to get these cases. Yeah. It, it, I, I don't know. The judges and attorneys that, that really like patent cases will, will tell you that they're the most fun and intellectually stimulating ones. So maybe that's appealing to someone in 
North Dakota, some judge in and, North Dakota, who knows? And who doesn't <laughs> want to like have, you know, plaintiffs and defendants in front of them that are the biggest companies, right? It's like you're going to get Apple and Intel and all these things that you know a lot about from just uh, them being big players in the business world and, and the tech world. So I can see why there's a lot of appeal here. I really appreciate you guys coming on to explain this. I think, of course, as usual, we're going to have a lot to watch in the space as we see how this big sea change really reshapes the map. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thank you. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, I think you have one for us this week. I sure do. We, um, you know, I think we've all had a few romantic misadventures, not to get too personal or anything. It's it's tough <laughs> out there. There's a lot of weirdos. Um, I love that phrasing, romantic misadventure. <laughs> well, that's an understatement for what we're going to talk about uh, right <laughs> now. You know, take comfort in this. Picture that you're a, a promising big law associate whose boyfriend eavesdropped on her work calls and went through your private documents to get inside dirt on a pharmaceutical merger so he could do himself uh, a little bit of insider trading. (laughs) Okay, I want to hear all about this, but I would like to point out that my brain immediately has turned this into the starting incident of a really great rom-com where this is the bad (laughs) boyfriend that hurt this up-and-coming attorney, and she's going to find a great guy in the mailroom later or something. She's going to move. She's going to inherit an inn in the country. (laughs) Okay, I hear where you're going with that, Haley, but I hate those because I want the high-powered female attorneys to stay in the city with their good jobs. I know. I agree. I am placing her bow in the mailroom. Maybe he's like the guy who works at the the local Starbucks right around the corner from the firm. I don't know, something. (laughs) I'm workshopping. Okay. It. Yeah. Just a real, just real salt of the earth kind of guy. Someone who would not do Someone something. Someone who won't stock, do the stock tip thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell us what he did, Alex. Someone who won't do the things alleged in a new indictment uh, by the Manhattan DA this week. That document, those charging documents, accuse two men, Seth Markin and Brandon Wong, of insider trading on the uh, pharmaceutical company Merck. Merck's acquisition of biotech firm Pandian. That is information that they gleaned uh, when Markin snooped on his then-girlfriend, an attorney who was working on the deal for Merck. So, pretty cut-and-dried example of insider trading. Um, Markin is alleged to have relied on overheard conversations, information that was disclosed to him in confidence, um, going through his girlfriend's documents, learning about the deal, and passing that information to his friend Wong as both basically just bought up a bunch of Pandian stock ahead of the deal announcement. You don't have to be a financial genius to figure out how that stuff works. Again, this is all just laid out in allegations in the charging documents. Okay, wait. I have a question for you, and I think you're probably about to get there. The attorney didn't know any of this was happening? Uh, no, I mean, to her to her knowledge, I mean, this was all sort of surreptitiously done. I should It should be noted here that this happened while the firm had gone to remote work during the sure. COVID-19 pandemic. 
And this, by the nature of her job, forced her to have, again, this is all laid out in the narrative portion of the charging documents that she was having confidential conversations, often on speakerphone, had documents in and around her apartment, and that even though she wasn't living with Markin at the time, he would often spend several days there. She had even given him a key fob to get into her building, and that's basically how it is alleged to have gone. I should say that neither the lawyer nor the firm are actually named in these charging documents, but we do know from prior announcements um, and and press coverage about this deal that Merck was repped by Covington and Burling um, on this agreement. So just take that for what it's worth. Okay. I mean, here's my feeling about this work from home element of it. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other prong of it. Well, yeah. my husband and I are constantly like yelling at each other to like close your door. You're being too loud. Like, so I can hear. <laughs> I can understand how you'd overhear calls. But in my instance, which I think is the more typical one, it's spouses who are constantly mad at each other for being too loud. They're not trying to overhear anything. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get us too off track, but this really has me wondering if someone did want to snoop on my work from home life, like what they would glean from it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't don't tell on yourself here. I mean, I don't... like, you know, I don't um, think it would be anything. It would be like, well, this week on Pro Se looks yeah, like right. we're going to talk yeah. about. <laughs> they can get the early scoop on what we're talking about on Pro Se after the production meeting, um, which could Juicy definitely stuff. yield a, wor- a financial whirlwind. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did also want to say Markin was in training to be an FBI agent, um, which uh, the that's relevant only to the extent that the the government's allegations say that he basically used that, his status there to tell his girlfriend that, you know, I'm like a good person. I am a trustworthy person. I have a security clearance. I will, am in training to be a government agent and used this to kind of win her trust, which he then abused. And, you um, know, do they train <laughs> FBI agents on, you know, information collecting? Because he's great at that. Yeah, they, they eventually broke up. But she actually did contact him again, asking why his name had come up in this FINRA investigation. That's the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. They were looking into some irregularities in Pandian stock acquisitions. He denied trading in any of that stock, which struck me as a pretty classic ex-boyfriend move. I (laughs) wanted to... There, Markin and this other guy, it's a pretty standard. They're facing securities fraud, some other fraud charges, conspiracy... I wanted to know if you guys are open to share, if you have any dating horror stories, uh, hopefully nothing on this level. I was thinking about, I don't know, this is entirely speculative and I don't want to focus on it too much. I, I don't know what's going on with this woman's personal life if the firm has been able to put together that she might have been the one who uh, was, not, not that she did anything wrong, um, but I can't imagine it's a very fun time. Uh, right now for her. Yeah, I I got a feel for her. Um, I was thinking about this, you know, when you brought up this story, Alex, about any bad dating stories that would be relevant. And my answer is my husband and I started dating when we were in our mid-20s. And so anybody that dated me before that, um, I didn't have any good information anybody would want to snoop on. (laughs) I was just trying to make it through law school before that. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was like real standard stuff. Yeah. I, uh, I'm a, I'm in a similar boat. I've been with my wife for 12 years, which means I missed out on the, um, I never did any like app based dating, which I think really kind of accelerates the weirdo quotient, 
if you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm on this date with this person who called the waiter an ethnic slur when the food was slow to come out or something. Like, I don't know. The closest, I mean, so mine are pretty tame. In high school, I will say, my girlfriend thought it was really funny to eat flaming hot Cheetos dipped in cream cheese and then try to kiss me. That's about, which is like extremely gross. (laughs) And I didn't appreciate that. Well, She's a very I'm, nice person. Uh, nice. And, and other than that, I, I treasure our time together. But I didn't She's appreciate She's officially it. called out, though, right now I, on the person. Yeah, I didn't appreciate about. that. Wow. Yeah, uh, you've, been, you've been holding this <laughs> holding this in for a long time. It was very disgusting. And, you know, it's something that you would do in high school if you're, like, trying to clown on somebody. But, uh, <laughs> I didn't appreciate it at the time, and I don't now. What's worse, Alex? That behavior or um, someone trading on information they stole by overhearing your work calls? I don't know. You know it's it's a real call. toss up for me. I've only <laughs> I've only lived one experience, so I can't really right. compare them, sure. right? Like sure. so, I don't know, but well, be careful out there daters of the world yeah. because yeah. two extremes we've explained on this show today. We didn't even know that this was a something to be worried about, but hey, <laughs> keep the keep the head on a swivel, especially if you're working from home. Well, it's been a busy and great show today. Thanks a lot for being with me, Alex. Thank you, Amber. And Haley. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Ryan Davis and Danny Cass, and our contributing reporters, Jackie Bell, Cara Salvatore, Morgan Conley, and Al Barbarino. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, definitely leave us a written review, five stars, write that review. It helps other people find our show. And if you want to know more about anything we've talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.